Happy October, OCD fam! Fall is in full effect here in the States, especially in the Midwest. It's funny because after living in California for so long, I had forgotten about some of the endearing regional quirks that happen around these parts. For example, there's kind of a challenge to see how long you can go without turning on your heat around this time of year. So right now, it's in the mid-40s today, which honestly feels kind of glorious after a steamy summer. And while it's quote-unquote cold, your house doesn't necessarily drop to the mid-40s, so how long can you make it without turning on the heat? I'll tell you, being married to a native Californian and having spent a good deal of my adult life there as well, Our heat probably first came on in August, maybe even late July. (laughs) Oh, it's okay. Judge us if you must. But if it gets to be like 68 degrees in the house, we turn into frozen pumpkins. So we are definitely early to the heat game around here. We're civilized, so we don't keep it on for long, especially during those summer days. But if it's getting chilly at night, bring on the heat. And yes, we will wear layers or grab a blanket too, but sometimes it's still cold. So we turn it on. And if that's wrong, I don't want to be right. (laughs) But I would venture to say the vast majority of our neighbors are probably just now getting to the point of turning on the heat, with the exception of a few tough birds still edging it out. But it's been in the 30s some mornings, mid-70s by the afternoon. I mean, the weather simply can't make up its mind. But I think we've finally entered into what I affectionately call sweater weather. And I am here for it. So join me with heat or no heat, AC, a fresh breeze, as we cozy up to some more OCD family goodness. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The OCD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Well, I'm really excited to talk with our guest, Laris Mested, today. She's a licensed mental health counselor, as well as an approved clinical supervisor in Washington State. Woo woo, let's hear it for the Pacific Northwest. Additionally, she's a national certified counselor and a national certified school counselor. Lara is currently working on her PhD at Antioch University in Seattle for counselor education and supervision. And I personally love that a big goal for her is to bring better training and education about OCD to master's level graduate school programs. She's an adjunct faculty member at Antioch Seattle, and she's already creating an impact by starting the work at Antioch. But I am really excited and happy to cheer her on as so many counseling, therapy, and even doctoral programs with masters in RU are not trained very well on this important disorder. 
And aside from learning a rote definition and the diagnostic manual or flagging an extreme presentation of stereotypic behavior associated with OCD, most schools don't cover this. It's a slide if that. So Lara is doing game changer work, and I am so excited to just cheer her on. I mean, she has extensive training in OCD. She's presented at numerous conferences. She's penned and published multiple exposure therapy workbooks, and she's the clinical director at Polaris Family Behavioral Health. She has received awards like Elementary School Counselor of the Year and Best in Show for Conference Presentations, and I just couldn't be more delighted to host Lara at our family table. Despite her broad load, Lara finds time to summit mountains and other self-care that ranges from aerial classes to travel to art. And hey, she's also just a fun person to be around, and I feel grateful that I can call her a friend as well as a colleague. So join me in welcoming Lara as we pivot a bit today and zoom into a very popular, very common compulsion in reassurance-seeking. So we saw each other in Denver last, and we first connected really through OCD training. We both have our Behavioral Therapy Training Institute certification, which is a mouthful for sure. And you were able to present at Denver. We we saw each other in passing at the elevator, and that seemed ironic at first until by the end of the conference, you're like, I've seen everybody in the elevator. <laughs> So the first day when I saw you in the elevator, I was like, what are the chances that I would run? And then I was like, they're pretty good, actually. They were really good. <laughs> See you in the elevator at some point. Yeah, it was like that first day. Every time I got in the elevator, it was somebody that I knew. And I was just like, what? Also, congratulations on the podcast. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. It's been a fast learning curve. I think I'm getting there. And it's been fun. And I'm glad that you could come on. So you're going to talk with us about reassurance today. I think that is such an important topic to discuss because I, I get a lot of questions from family members that get really stuck in their head about how to respond to their loved one because they're very, very mindful that reassurance isn't going to help and they don't want to reassure. And at the same time, it sometimes makes them feel a little stuck in knowing how to respond because you can provide information, you can provide comfort and support, you can provide love and still not reassure, which sounds great on paper. But when people are in the moment, they're like, eh, am I reassuring? Am I reinforcing? So I think this is going to be a really helpful topic and yeah, I'm really excited to hear more in terms of reassurance seeking. So thank you so much for coming on today and sharing about reassurance. Yeah. So I would say a great place to start with reassurance seeking is just understanding that this is something that's going to come up for almost every single person that has OCD in some way, shape or form. I actually, in the hundreds of clients that I've worked with with OCD, I've never had a single person that didn't engage in reassurance seeking compulsions. So extremely common. It's going to happen. It's going to impact family members and loved ones. And if we treat it like other compulsions and try to eliminate it, then that is going to overall help a person with OCD get rid of OCD. Because every time a family member or a loved one gives into that reassurance-seeking compulsion, they're just participating in that OCD cycle. 
And it's just going to keep reinforcing it and feeding the OCD and making it bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's not what we want for a person with OCD. We want to make their OCD smaller and quieter. Yeah. And that's something we've been learning about compulsions in general, that when somebody facilitates, even outside of the suffer, that compulsion and they participate in it, that is still reinforcing that learning cycle in the brain. And so this is one of those compulsions that OCD sufferers are going to seek a lot from their community, from their loved ones. They're going to look to you and say, right? You know, is this correct? Am I doing this right? Or are you okay? Am I I'm making safe choices? Whatever the obsessional thought, that core fear is, they're going to be looking for you to go like, I didn't murder somebody in an attack. I didn't do whatever it is that my mind is telling me that I did or I might do. So yeah, that's really an important point. Everybody you've ever worked with, with OCD, does reassurance seeking. And so this is a very easy one to to highlight because it shows up across cases. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it really starts to wear on loved ones who are being asked for reassurance is what I find too, is that they know they're not supposed to give reassurance. If they've been educated on that, they understand that it's really hard for them not to do. And even with how hard it is for them to not engage in that behavior, they still do it, which reinforces the cycle. But then they start to get annoyed and frustrated that they're, they have to, that they keep getting asked by it. So then that can also cause a lot of strain, I find, on relationships in the family. Yeah, yeah. Like... Sometimes people will feel like, do you not trust what I said? Do you not believe me? Have I not explained it? Or it could just be an annoyance. And it's definitely a distress or, you know, at the very least an annoyance sometimes for the OCD sufferer. Sometimes they have some awareness of like, I know that I, I didn't, but I, I, I have to ask. And it's frustrating because I just can't help but to ask. And that's how they feel. But we can help not answer <laughs> when the reassurance seeking starts. So it's definitely a tricky one because I think a lot of clients, I know clients that I work with are like, how do I even talk to my family member then? Because what if I'm reassuring? I don't want to do that because then I'm reinforcing the OCD. So in terms of recognizing where reassurance seeking is popping up in the relationship or conversation, whether verbally or non-verbally, do you have some some tips or guides to kind of help determine, you know, when someone is reassurance seeking or not. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a big differentiation between reassurance seeking and information seeking, right? And a lot of that is thinking about what's the function behind this question, the statement. And so and that's something that I'll work with families on trying to figure out in the moment, maybe even asking the person with OCD to take a step back and why are you asking this? Is it because you need this information for something. So let's say someone's spouse didn't give a clear time of when they were going to get off of work. And the person with OCD says, oh, when are you going to be home? That seems like a normal question. And it is unless the function is serving OCD. So if it's I need to know or I want to know what time my spouse is coming home so I know when we're going to have dinner tonight, that's more information seeking. But if the function is I'm getting anxious and I need to make sure that my spouse hasn't died, mm -hmm. then that is driven from OCD uh, would be more reassurance seeking. So looking at the function, and I'll ask my clients to think about the function of the question that you're asking or the statement that you're making. Is it to take away that uncertainty and to just like any other compulsion, neutralize anxiety or distress that you're feeling from your OCD? 
And if that's the reason for it, it's probably reassurance speaking. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Because when, if you're trying to get a ballpark time because you're like, I'm going to put a casserole in and, you know, I don't want it to get cold if, if you're not even on your way yet, you're getting informed for a series of events. And I think that's where sometimes clients can or families can overthink it because they're like, well, but I, I am, I'm wanting to know so that this is a, so the casserole doesn't get cold. We're not, we're not getting stuck because of the casserole questions. Where we get stuck is when the function serves the person to feel less anxious. So it's, uh, you know, and you might be anxious that the casserole gets cold, but that's different than the anxiety related to obsessional fears for your loved one. So if it's your, you know, if you're thinking about the function and you're like, okay, this serves a purpose that whether it 100% comes true or not, whether it whether it's happening or not, like just as giving us kind of a ballpark compass of like how we're going to function for the rest of the day, that's fine. But if it's because I'm really anxious and I need to reduce that anxiety, that is a that's a nice tool to be able to differentiate if it's information seeking or reassurance seeking. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes I'll even have my clients just kind of take a step back if they're going through because obviously someone with OCD doubts themselves and so for reassurance seeking they can doubt wait can I ask this question can I not ask this question but just like any other compulsion I'll ask them to think about how much distress or anxiety would you feel if you couldn't engage in this behavior so if you were prevented from asking the question would you feel distress would you feel anxiety if so that might be a clue that it's more reassurance right yeah So, yeah, if it's that's a really good point, too, because chances are if you didn't ask about the casserole, like, you know, when are you leaving so that, you know, like, oh, is the casserole going to be ready on time? It's not the end of the world, because at the very least, I mean, if you want warm casserole and they're not home, eat some casserole and be like, tough, tough luck. But at the same time, if. If you're having, and we've talked about the SUD scores, if you're doing it, whether one to 10, one to 100, whatever people's preferences, if you're like, yeah, that's an eight, if I don't know when they're leaving, it's probably not about the casserole. So I think that's a really good point. So they can do both. They can both look at what's the function of this? Is it just to reduce distress or also looking at kind of the, where it's hitting on their distress scale and saying, okay. So if I'm feeling a higher level, like before anything happens, you know, whether they respond or not, it might be reassurance seeking. That's a good way to differentiate. Yeah. And of course, once clients know that this is reassurance seeking, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to ask it because that's also really hard, right? Right. So one step is let's bring the awareness to this is figuring out. Am I asking for reassurance and having awareness in the moment and knowing it and naming it? And they might still choose to do it anyway, which is where family response comes in. The family's not responding, then they're not going to be able to complete the compulsion necessarily. Sometimes people can ask for reassurance without someone else's explicit participation, but that's usually at least how it starts. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, I ask a similar question in session that can be helpful. Sometimes, you know, regardless of the subject matter, a question or or even a statement gets floated out. And then there's a look like, does she, is she like, yeah or no, right? So the statement, it's not even necessarily put in questioned form, but the statement will get floated out. And I will say something to the effect of who's asking you or OCD. 
And I encourage families to do that too. Sometimes OCD sufferers get annoyed with that question because not everything is their OCD and that's fair. But at least asking the question and like you're saying, bringing awareness into the conversation because they can say, no, it's not if, if it's not. But also it might make them go, hmm, or, or could it be related? And just helping to draw attention to the possibility like it's, it's okay to reflect together about these things. And you don't always have to figure it out alone. But it also as the family member, the partner, you don't always have to go, but is it or is it not? Should I answer? Should I not? You can say, like, hmm, I'm kind of wondering if this is reassurance-seeking. So we can get stuck, though, in those places of reassurance-seeking about reassurance-seeking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you think I'm reassurance-seeking? <laughs> Maybe you are. Maybe you are. Maybe you <laughs> are. Are you feeling distressed right now? <laughs> yeah. So I think that's those are some good kind of an, initial kind of things that you can kind of filter through. So from there, where would you take it next? So I would say a couple of things that I found to be really important are to do some, first to do some psychoeducation with the family members to talk about the, all the different ways, including the sneaky ways that reassurance can come up. Then also... I like to give some kind of stock responses that people can use because it's really uncomfortable for family members. It's so counterintuitive. Even for me as a therapist, when someone asks for reassurance, it's so counterintuitive to not give that. It's like, mm -hmm. I want to help people. I want to make people feel better. And I know that that's not actually what's going to help them. So I find that it really helps to give some just like, here are some ways you can respond. And then maybe even having the client, depending on their age, co-create some of those stock responses like how could your parent sister spouse respond when you're asking in a way that is less likely to make you angry in the moment and more likely to make you just accept that they're not going to give it to you yeah i think that's a really great point i had a client just the other day who goes to her mom a lot of, for reassurance seeking and she was like this event happened and i i texted my mom and she gave me a great response and I thought, I wonder what there was, I wondered if it was going to be reassurance or not. I'm like, yeah, let's see. And she was like, mom just said, I don't know. And it was a huge breakthrough moment for her to go, okay, so she's not going to give me reassurance on it. And she, she walked away from it going, that was a great response. Like she knew, yeah. like she doesn't need to know, okay, so this is on me and I'm just going to make a choice and I can deal with the uncertainty, which was huge. And so I think it's great. I think we could have some fun and interesting conversation around, okay, so how does reassurance show up and what are some of those sneaky ways? And then I would love to kind of think through those stock responses with you as well, if that, if that works for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously reassurance can come in the most basic form, which is a question that if someone is aware of OCD, you know, this is clearly someone's OCD asking like, oh, am I going to get sick if I eat this? <laughs> right are you still alive? Yes. <laughs> like, that. I'm like, okay, this is pretty obvious. I find that loved ones can identify that type of reassurance once they have the education pretty easily once they know these are the types of areas that my loved one's OCD shows up as. So those can be pretty easy to identify, mm -hmm. but then they'll start to get a little sneakier. So even questions can get a little sneakier. Like, oh, hey, did you wash your hands before you started cooking? That sounds like something that someone without OCD could potentially ask. But again, when we look at what's the function, is it, oh, you're trying, are you trying to like remind them 
that like that's a thing that people do or are you trying to figure out because they cooked your food if they touched it with dirty hands or not and then I can start to get even more subtle even still asking questions before we even get to like statements of reassurance and looks and things like that I had a client last year who went up to her mom and she was like oh do you think someone's gonna steal our Halloween decoration and mom was like no and you know went off and did her own thing comes back 30 minutes later but like if do you think someone even could steal our halloween decorations they're pretty big and the mom's like no one's gonna steal our halloween decorations and daughter goes off again she comes back a third time and asks another similar question and that's when mom had the aha moment of oh this is ocd it wasn't around like her typical content area which is how mom missed it but it was that repetitive nature that food mom in because most of the time people with OCD, they're reassurance thinking they're not necessarily just going to ask one, mm-hmm. just like any other compulsion, they get that temporary relief and feels good in the moment, but then that's going to come back again because it doesn't actually give them certainty. Right. Yeah. Um, sometimes I get, I, I think we, we as therapists, as you said, can even get caught in it. And sometimes I get caught in the like, but this is a valid fear, you know, like it's valid that, you know, say an event happens where someone gets hit by a car and you're worried that what if I could hit somebody by a car? And so you avoid driving through streets where there's going to be more people around school zones, neighborhoods, or you might do a lot of checking around that. And so somebody gets hit by a car. It, it's a big story in town. And and you say, yeah, see, I mean, it's valid that this is a concern because this person did get hit by a car. Right. And they're looking for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, at face value, it's always valid that we don't want people hit by cars fair. (laughs) But at the same point, those kind of statements, even sometimes of saying, you know, because I think that sometimes people need validation, but where do you differentiate validation and reassurance? Because yeah, that's a valid point that you care about people's safety. And, you know, if this is, because this is probably in this scenario is less about the fact that somebody got hit in town, which is a tragedy, but it's more about your anxiety that you're hitting, you're going to hit somebody in town, that you're going to create a tragedy. And so how, how do we help our loved ones, help family members, partners parse out, like, I can validate that why you're going through struggle without reassuring it? Yeah. So I always tell people that I'm working with on this to do this within like the, I guess like within the context of care is the best way I can think to describe it. That I care about this person. I care about their feelings. I care about their struggle. And those are all things that I can validate. And then I can't reassure the thing that they're looking for with a certain answer. Because really, we as humans can never be 100% certain about literally anything. I cannot say for certain that you will never hit someone with a car. Right. Because I can't know that, right? But I can, I do know that their struggle and their suffering is valid. And I can say, I can tell that this is really hard for you. Mm-hmm. I, I'm so sorry that you're struggling so much with this. Mm-hmm. I really care. I also can't answer that question. I like that. I like that. And I think that's going to be really helpful for people because, yeah, it feels like people get tongue tied because they want to provide support. This person 
the the OCD sufferer might beg for that support. They may articulate, you don't love me. They may, they may say all sorts of things because what they crave more than anything is that reassurance. But what we're learning is that's what gets them stuck in that state. Because when we do reassure, it's still, if only for a moment, if it does lift or help them move on, it's for a moment and then they're stuck right there again. And so being able to say, I care, you're going through a lot, you're working really hard, and I can't answer that. Yeah, I think that's really good. Yeah. And I'll even coach people to say, again, I think people feel like jerks a little bit, like, oh, I'm not reassuring this person's suffering. And I'm just like, maybe, maybe not. Like, you know, that can seem really cold or feel really cold. So even explaining the reason of like, I love you so much. And that's why I'm not answering this, because I know that this is only going to make your OCD worse. And I don't want to do anything that could ever harm you. And this is something that even though it feels bad now will harm you in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. I've had people say to me before, like, you're not giving me what I want, <laughs> like what I need you to say. Like what I want you to say is this, this, that. And it's like, yeah, I, that's, I get it. That's, that is what you want. And you know, I know that this is going to hurt you. This is not going to help you. And so it is really hard, especially if because we we see how often reassurance seeking pops up. So someone can really spiral around your resistance of <laughs> reassurance seeking and they might hammer you even more. The intensity might get worse before it gets better. And I find that more in the beginning of treatment. But or if you are like, say, say you're a couple and you've been doing well in treatment, but you're like, no, we're having an argument about I see it this way. No, I see it that way. No, I see it this way. I'm not reassurance seeking. Yes, you are. And then we get caught in this whole big back and forth fight. So it's not always just in the beginning. We can get in, we can get in those head to heads. But still, even going back and forth in the argument can turn into kind of rationalizing and mental reviewing and all of those other fun, you know, mental rituals and acts that are kind of close neighbors to reassurance <laughs> in terms of popping into the conversation. So when in doubt, you know, if you're not sure what to say, would it be a good idea to be like, I don't know what to say and just not say much at all. You can just say, I, I don't know what to say. They'll tell you what they think you need to say and you can just go, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's a very transparent answer is I know that I can't answer this, but I don't know what to say. And that's where I feel like some of those stock responses can come in handy too. Like thing that adds uncertainty and increases uncertainty is always going to be a good response. And I don't know, definitely falls into that category, right? Where maybe that'll happen, maybe it won't. I personally really like to add humor into my responses. And of course, like that doesn't land well with everyone. So the <laughs> client should have, you know, some something in this, but I had someone the other day say, oh, if I eat this, am I going to die? And I went, well, I sure hope not because I like you, but I'll totally come to your funeral if you do. <laughs> and then he laughed and kind of took her out of that or anything that would that points out how ridiculous OCD is. Like one of my clients was mentally reviewing the, like, the next day of what she had to do for school so that it would be a good day. And then she'd ask for reassurance from her mom of, you know, what if tomorrow is a bad day? 
And so mom started responding with all of these really absurd things like, yeah, who knows? Maybe like a unicorn will just drop from the ceiling into your classroom and like break the ceiling and then the sprinklers will go up and this unicorn will just be running around and everyone's papers like go ever and just like keeps going on and on and on with this like really absurd what if that kind of takes the person with OCD out of that, this is a very serious question that needs to be answered. And oh, right, OCD is kind of ridiculous. It's just making me feel like this is important. Yeah, yeah, I I do. Any of my clients listening are going to be like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, she does that too. Because it, it, it you know, I, I do enjoy the, the humor. And I find when, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, when I get kind of a laugh, out of a client about something that's never made them laugh. It's all the, the compulsions. I'll, I'll, I'll even bring it to their attention. I noticed we got a little bit of a laugh there. I think OCD is getting a little weaker because how many times have you finished a compulsion? You seek reassurance or, you know, you check or something and you go, oh, that's hilarious. Like, I'm just I'm loving that. <laughs> Not often. But yeah, I mean, I do very similar things like, hey, I'll see you next week, unless you do die, in which case, like, that, that's kind of kind of look bad for me. But if you could just, like, maybe leave a note, have mom cancel your session so I can, you know, just know or whatever. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they never, no one's died on me yet, you know, based on what their fears or have they killed everyone else in the world. So there we go. So far, we, we have a good streak. Could th- bad things happen, though? You're absolutely right. And it really sets the suffer up. It sets us up. It sets the family members up when we do say like, yeah, that's not going to happen, right? You have a kid or an adult with contamination fears, especially having gone through the pandemic, you know, where there was so much possibility for getting sick going. You're not going to get sick. Just wait. Just wait till they get sick. They're going to be like, I will never forget this because I got sick and this could have happened, you know. It, it it's just we we don't have a crystal ball we don't we could use a magic eight ball magic eight balls are great because they literally have no real answers maybe <laughs> ask again later but you know what like there is no such thing as as certainty and so there are lots of instances in our life where ocd can go okay Granted, and it, it it's really hypocritical because there, we can embrace uncertainty in so many different areas of our life. But when it comes to those compulsions, nope, you have to have certainty. And as many times as you could perform that in your lifetime, it's never enough for OCD. It only wants more, more certainty. So yeah, anything that can foster and facilitate that sense of uncertainty is really helpful. So in terms of some of those stock responses that you recommend, we've talked about like the very transparent, I don't know, you can say, you can say that. You can validate the person's experience of the struggle and still not reassure the actual compulsion. What would some other stock responses be that you tend to recommend for clients? Yeah, so those are my definitely go to thing that increases uncertainty, but that doesn't mean it has to be a 50-50 chance of uncertainty. And I think that's something that people struggle with as you have thinking, oh, I just have to say this might happen. And it can be, well, it probably won't, but there's always a chance it will. Mm-hmm. Especially when we get to things like like pedophilia, OCD, and things like that. Like that might be a more appropriate time to say, well, you're probably not a pedophile, but there's always a small chance, right? Yeah. That way it's not a 50-50 uncertainty. For parents, I 
tell them they can throw me under the bus and just say, Laura told me I'm not allowed to answer questions like this. Laura told me I'm not allowed to give reassurance. Like, just throw me under the bus, mom. It's totally fine with me. The client can be mad at me and not you. If that's too difficult to have your child angry at you for not answering their questions or giving them reassurance. And then, yeah, anything, anything that adds humor, if the client is okay with that. But I really do love including the client in these conversations, obviously, depending on their age and developmental level of, do you have any ideas for responses? What responses do you think you'd respond better to? And then you have their buy-in because if the loved one responds in the way that they told them to and it doesn't go well, then they can say, okay, well, I was responding the way you told me to. Let's come up with something different because clearly that wasn't something that worked well. And then they can continue to have, you know, having ended their own treatment. Yeah, I like that. I like that. My son has OCD and he's to have a thing about the number 13 because I think some twilight zone, I think this all came from like the Tower of Terror ride. He has never been on the Tower of Terror ride, but there's like a whole Twilight Zone theme of the Tower of Terror at like Disney World. And he was like, the 13th floor is bad and this is where bad stuff happens. And while he could appreciate that it was a story, kind of part of the theme of the ride, he was like, 13 is bad. So we would do 13, you know, we'd do things with 13 all the time because, <laughs> because it was the bad number. But he really started to take initiative with that. So he would like, guess what? I went to the playground and I did this jumping thing 13 times. Oh, it's going to be a bad day. We would always celebrate having the best, worst day ever. And we had like a whole dance. We'd be like, oh, yes, it's going to be the best, worst day ever. And we, you know, would do the whole thing. Yep, it's going to be super bad. And it just became this thing where now he's able to go, yeah, 13's not bad. I used to I used to struggle with that. That's what he says. Like he's eight, but he's like, yeah, when I was little, that was <laughs> something I dealt with when I was little, you know, <laughs> but it's empowering for him to be able to be a part of that process and co-author and really just eventually take the lead on that. I don't even think to make things into 13s anymore. And he'll be like, Mom, I got a, a prize at school. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, but it's the 13th. Ha. And I'm like, oh, yeah, ha. He's like, yeah, take that OCD. And so I don't even think about it anymore. But he, because it's something he's been able to champion over. And it is really exciting, I think, when clients feel like they can have a little more of that industry and control while recognizing we can't have certainty in our control. Just being able to go, yeah, this has bossed me for so long. I'm, I, I can take the initiative in bossing it. And that feels really good. Yeah, totally. Something else that's making me think of that gives clients agency in, in this reassurance seeking, because it can be really hard to not ask for reassurance. So if we're first working on just limiting the amount that they ask, I've had people have like reassurance tokens where they maybe get four a week. And if they are going to ask for reassurance, they have to go to their loved one, hand a token in and say, this is one of my four reassurances that I can get this week. And then they, they get the response to that, but they only get those four. Mm -hmm. And then any other time, they will not get reassurance. And so obviously the ideal would be to not ritualize at all and not get any reassurance at all. That's also not going to be a realistic starting point for everybody. Mm -hmm. So someone with OCD might feel a little more like success or they get control, a little bit more control or agency in how and when we start to reduce the reassurance. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that. Those tokens. Well, and also, you know, certain things, there are appropriate levels that you can engage in something. And then the OCD and obsessional thought takes it into excess. And so what would be a reasonable response as well can sometimes be where you can add in some of those tokens. So like, for example, what would be reasonable if you went to the bathroom and you wanted to wash your hands after going to the bathroom? Is that reasonable? Sure. Is it reasonable to do it once? Sure. And how long do we do that? Well, the CDC tells us we shouldn't probably sing happy birthday. But I mean, how long do people actually stand there and wash their hands? And so, okay, that would be reasonable. How many pumps of soap would be reasonable? One, maybe, or two tops. And so we could say, yeah, we can do that. And after that, we can lock up the soap and we can, you know, or whatever and say, okay, anything beyond that, we're not going to respond to. And so, yeah, I like that idea. We also, I think a popular one in in therapy is having like a worry journal where you can go ask all your questions or write down all the things that you would say otherwise. And your person will check it once a day. They'll write their response. We usually prompt a very general response you know, that is, again, going to allow room for that uncertainty. And then it can be, okay, I had my response. And so if they come up, you got to go to the journal, you put it in the journal and start kind of facilitating that, like, that balance of you're going to think it, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to act on it. Yeah. And that's a great starting point, too. I think also letting people know that that's not a forever thing, because obviously that can become its own compulsion. Yes, yes it can. (laughs) People start to just get reassurance from themselves once they realize they're not going to get it from from their loved ones. Or like you said earlier, maybe it's just looking first, looking at someone's facial expressions like, oh, this song is playing on the radio right now and it has a lot of inappropriate language and my OCD is telling me you're a bad person. If you listen to this, let me like take a look over the person in the car with me and see if they think it's bad. And if they are not reacting at all, then okay, I'm actually okay to listen to this song. I'm not a terrible person. But if they look shocked, then that's when I know I need to turn it off because that makes me a bad person. So it's really great to have these starting points where family members are either not responding at all or not responding as frequently. And they should know that it'll also start to morph over time potentially so that the person can still get reassurance without a loved one actively participating in it. Right. So you might be oblivious that they're thinking anything about the script of the song and they're looking and they're they're still kind of bouncing off of your nonverbals. And I think that's sometimes where family members can come in and they feel anxious themselves and distress themselves going, I think I'm, I'm enabling this and I'm, I'm facilitating this, but you also recognizing what is your responsibility and what's theirs. And if you think that they're having responses, then that's a great opportunity to talk with them about it. You don't need to just come in and go, oh dear, I think they're reading my nonverbals. You can say to them, I think you're looking to my nonverbals if you catch on. Again, there's times you're not going to catch on. But we can't work harder than the client. So if they end up reassuring themselves, they end up reassuring themselves. That's something we can address in treatment. That's something you can address in your relationship, too. Like, I wonder if you're reassuring yourself with this in the responses and, and looking, you know, to see if I'm 
responding or not. I'm not paying attention at all. But I, I wonder if you are. And then literally just leaving it there. You don't have to solve it for them. They don't have to solve it for, for them in that moment. Like let them reflect on that and chew on that a little bit. But it is tricky when somebody kind of gets to that level of reassuring themselves. This can happen not just with the parents. That happens with us as the therapist too. Like, you know, they cast something out and they're looking to see if you nibble or not. And some clients, as you build more of that rapport to be like, you're just not going to bite. Are you? You're just like not going to respond. But sometimes we can get caught up in it too. So all we can do is continue to try and stay aware. If we get caught in it, we can address it and try to adapt so that OCD isn't getting the upper hand in that. But it's okay for us to not know because I think people get a little OCD about OCD at times of going, oh, but was I doing that or wasn't I doing that? And that in and of itself can become the compulsion. Am I? Am I not? Am I? Am I not? Am I? Am I not? It's like, eh. you know, trying to solve that and going into that solving compulsion mode sometimes can be a form of trying to reassure yourself that you're either on the right track or not. And solving compulsions are tricky. Yes, definitely. Especially when they come in that form of like, oh, I'm just going to make this statement or I'm going to say, oh, that person, I probably could have held the door for them. but They're like a little far away. And then just see what the other person says. If they're like, oh, that's fine. Like, that's not a big deal. You didn't hold the door open. Then I like that relief for a second the other person has no idea that you're asking for reassurance on something like that yeah and even when they like let's say for the facial expressions if they are aware like i see that my loved one is looking at me and i know that this is a trigger for them Mm -hmm. um i've also had loved ones just respond like (gasps) like make a face like a shocked face at whatever it is again the client's aware that this is happening so that they don't get that that reassurance necessarily they would like start making a bunch of funny faces they can't read your facial expression uh-huh where um, even just having loved ones be a part of treatment once they get to that point i'm thinking in particular of a client who was just always checking that same one checking her mom's reassurance when songs and other things would come on and so i had the mom come into a session on zoom with her camera off and muted and then we played a bunch of music that was triggering and drew pictures and she literally couldn't check for her mom's response because mom's camera was off and that was a really really effective exposure practice and response prevention because she couldn't check and so even getting loved ones involved in treatment in that way can be a way to address that sneakier little bit of reassurance seeking yeah and i love that insight too that loved ones can bring in especially like parents that just kind of know the tells of their kids so well that's so helpful I can remember doing this in session once where I thought oh we're making some good progress on this exposure and it's not to say we weren't for that particular client but mom started to realize like the client is doing fine with the exposure but continually kind of looking up at mom in a very subtle, quick way to to check whether she's happy or not. And she started to get aware of this and decided to have like really flat effects. So just not really giving a response either way. And he started increasing in his distress level. And he even started saying the like, this isn't hard for me at all. I'm like seriously not having a hard time at all about this and neither of us commented and he was and he continued like yeah I mean I kind of think like you're probably like if anything you're probably worried about how much I'm enjoying this 
And again, you know, I think actually it was a timed exposure and the and the time concluded and the mom was like, yeah, you want reassurance in this. And I was like, it was so subtle what he was doing. And I wasn't even aware at first because he was just very, very, like very slightly checking with mom, with his gaze. But yeah, it made him very anxious. The idea of, you know what, like, what if they think I do enjoy this? What if they think I'm this bad person? What if they? And so his response wasn't even anymore about the exposure of this content used to be triggering because of my old obsessional thought about this. This content is triggering because what if you think I'm capable of it? Because I'm just doing this exposure so well. And that can happen, you know, within the context of family. It can happen in that therapeutic relationship, too. So OCD is sneaky. It can start off sneaky, but its adaptations can be sneaky. When you're kind of getting that upper ground, it can modify and kind of just worm its way in in a new way. And so, and, and I think a lot of clients are aware of that, which is why they're so afraid that they're constantly accommodating with the reinsurance because they're like, because then some clients get stuck and go, I don't even know how to act with them because I, I feel like everything I do is going to end up reassuring them. Yeah. Yeah. I like to refer to OC as like, it's a really smart disorder as weird as that sounds. And like, the only way that we're going to beat it is to be even sneakier than it is. And I think even just, you know, having clients be aware of all the ways that it can sneak in without having them then obsess over <laughs> the morphing of their OCD, right? That is right. almost a good sign when it starts to be like super sneaky because that means OCD is getting scared like oh you're really starting to make some progress and it's like trying to pull up all the stops to get you to not get better basically so it's like in some ways it's a good sign when that happens because you're doing better and it's just you know getting ahead of it yeah so getting ahead of it we've talked about having some of those stock responses and really I think probably too like I, I like to have families kind of create kind of a game plan in terms of what they know about their opponent here. Because there are going to be some classic ways that it shows up, even, you know, before they get very far into treatment. They're going to be acutely aware of what's really problematic right now about OCD. And so being aware of that, because planning, and this is something that, you know, at any point in treatment, and I think for any of us can be really helpful, whether it's OCD or not, planning our responses. If we know this is where I'm going to struggle, then planning ahead makes it a lot easier to put those things into practice when the going gets tough. And this is part of the reason why we do like fire drills, right? And this is why we have emergency escape plans posted in any kind of official public business or space, because, you know, how often are we in the emergency? Maybe never. But if we're in the emergency, being able to know, okay, and there's an exit here and there's an exit there, planning ahead helps. And just having an idea of going, okay, so these are some responses I can have, or this is how it might look. Might it show up in a different way? Sure. Our job isn't to know it's every move. Because again, we our job is to want to be able to live our lives, not OCD's life for us, right? So if we want to get real consumed in like what we want to do, let's look at our values and go, okay, what do I want to do? What's the goal for today? We wanted to go have a picnic for dinner. Okay, so my goal is figuring out, then let's put that energy into, do I need to go to the grocery store? What are we going to take? And what time, you know, what time are we going to meet? Versus, but, 
you know, when we go to the grocery store, we have to sanitize the cart. And when we move the cart and we have to pull the lettuce, but we can only get the third lettuce back because people probably touch the other two lettuce and they put it back. You know, all those different pieces is not what we need to invest all that time and energy in. But being aware, going to the grocery store can trigger it. Well, I'm going to go with my responses. I'm going to be okay. Having these responses, and it might not work perfectly every time, but having that plan in place can be really helpful as well. Yeah, I love that. And even thinking about like retroactively gaining awareness because, you know, maybe we know it's going to show up in this way and we're not anticipating a different way. And so I'll encourage my clients to talk to their loved ones. Let's say they've asked for reassurance. They got it because it was kind of a sneaky form, but then afterwards to have a conversation about it and afterwards say, hey, now that I'm not in that heightened mode, that was actually me asking for reassurance. That was an OCD thing. And you did give into it because you didn't realize. So that way, then more awareness is built. So we know, oh, this is the way that it can show up. And now I can look out for that in the future too. Yeah. Let me ask you this. I have, I have some clients, not every client, but some clients that struggle also with confession. And so they may really overanalyze what was I reassurance seeking? I'm not sure, but in case I was, I should probably tell you that I did that. And so in the situation where having some of that after the fact conversation can be helpful, but also in that situation where maybe they overly confess everything just in case it might have been wrong, what would you suggest for that situation if you have kind of a retroactive experience? Maybe having, if the caretaker or the the parent or the partner is aware of it, they can point it out versus the client. But if it's one of those really sneaky ones where we're not sure, what would you recommend in that? Maybe just having them be aware that they might have done something wrong and just hold that because that would be (laughs) part of the battle of the confession. Yeah, yeah. Because I don't know if I would recommend the retroactive conversations for someone where we know that that's one of their compulsions necessarily. But also just looking at, again, what's the function behind them? Good point. Are you pointing it out because you feel the need to confess because you did something wrong or that your he says is wrong? Or is it, I genuinely want to offer this information because I need to stop asking for reassurance and I need my family to help me? And though, you know, there can be a fine line between that, right? Right. But I would say again, looking at looking at the function behind it. Or if I wasn't able to confess and tell them I asked for reassurance, would I feel anxious? Mm, yeah. That's a really good if the answer is yes, then maybe not, maybe don't. Maybe don't do it then. Or maybe do it later when you're not activated and he doesn't have a hand in it and it is genuinely oh, I'm, I'm pointing this out so you know that this is a thing to look out for. Mm-hmm. And maybe even being more vague if we know that's the case is like a couple of days later, maybe saying, oh, hey, I realized a new way that my OCD has decided to seek reassurance and not talk about that specific time. Like not, oh, on Tuesday at 4 p.m. I asked for reassurance by yeah. doing this. I but look, thanks, oh, yes. hey, this is a new way it can show up to be on the lookout for it. So then they're not confessing for that one time that they asked for reassurance. They're, they are genuinely just providing information. Yeah, I like that. That's That's a really good point too. Less detail, less certainty, less telling on yourself and just living with the distress of knowing they know something happened, but they don't know the details. And I can deal with that. I can I can sit with yeah. I can act with the the distress. And I think an important point too is it's not just a matter of can I sit with the distress 
that comes after. But can I go on and live my life and go, oh, yeah, it's there, but, I, I, you know, okay. So we're going to pack for the picnic where yeah, I'm not going to get caught up in the details around it. And so that's ultimately the goal to be able to say, yeah, I have that distress there, but I don't have to do anything in particular to try and make it go away. Just allowing room for it and living to my values in time, it'll pass. Maybe <laughs> it'll pass. So <laughs> it won't. <laughs> maybe, maybe it won't. Maybe you'll just be plagued by that for the rest of your life. And in you know, when you die someday, the obituary will be like, yeah, and they were plagued all their life about that picnic. But <laughs> you know, I've read weirder things in obits, so I guess it could happen. But you know, chances are, yeah. But I think that's a really good point. So, in terms of I think, first of all, people not always recognizing that they are participating in reassurance seeking because there are certain things that are very easy to point out and then other things that are a lot more subtle and sneaky. And so already just having a conversation about that, being aware of that, having a little bit of a plan in place of like how it can show up and that we're aware that it can show up some of those sneaky ways. And so we're not going to catch it every time again. This is not, the point isn't to catch it every time, right? Because I think that that too, I mean, when people get through the psychoeducation and they go, okay, if, if my loved one does the compulsion, it reinforces the learning in the brain. But if I participate in the compulsion, I'm also reinforcing it in the brain. So now they're almost more hypervigilant, like, I've got to make sure that I don't participate in these compulsions. And they can get somewhat obsessional about not participating in it. And so if you miss one, you miss one. If we overthink it, we overthink it. But trying to recalibrate of like, yes, this is our opponent. No, we don't want to participate in the cycle, but we don't want our life to be about this OCD cycle either. So being able to go, yes, this is the opponent. This is, they're sneaky. This is how they show up. And what do we want? out of our lives? What do we want to be enjoying? Do we want to sit there and be fretting for hours or going to bed at night going, oh crap, I think I just, I think I did reassure them and all of that? No, we want to be able to go, okay, we got through this one's soccer game and somehow still got to bed and did homework. And I, you know, well, we'll call that a win. We don't need to get caught up in all the other details of, you know, it's important to learn from our from our experiences, but not get so caught up in the experiences that we're not living. We're not experiencing life because we're caught up in the intrusive thought cycle. Yeah, almost like encouraging loved ones to give themselves some grace in that too, because yeah. sometimes like you just have to get out the door. Sometimes you have free screaming children and they have to get to school and one of them other CD and they need you to do this specific thing and you're about to be late for work. And like, obviously that's not the ideal situation. The ideal situation is never to accommodate or reassure, ritualize, but sometimes it's going to happen because life is crazy. And so um, I find encouraging loved ones not be so hard on themselves. Like sometimes you just have to get through the day. Like you said, we just have to get through this. And yeah, most of the time I'm not going to give them to OCD. And occasionally it's either going to happen intentionally, like, okay, I know this is happening. It's a choice that I'm making because of the circumstances, or it's going to happen accidentally too. And, you know, focusing on, did I 
help my loved one with OCD perfectly also has flavors of OCD, right? Right. I have to do it every time. Yes. I was going to say, it's not, it's a, it's very reminiscent of exposures we would do even with someone around, like, can I make a mistake in class on purpose on this, right? You know, like having, being able to sit with the distress of, okay, I'm not going to get it perfect every time. And, yeah. and that doesn't mean, that doesn't wipe out all the good work we're doing. It's, it's still reducing a dramatic amount. And if you become aware that you made the mistake, then you're probably not going to make that same mistake again. So the learning has served its function. It's learned, it's served its purpose. If we sit there and kind of hold on to that and they go, but I can't make a mistake, then that's going to make it worse. I think it's so, it can be so easy to get into that all or nothing thinking. Like I can do a pretty good job, but if I make the mistake once, then their their OCD is going to relapse. It's going to come back to full strength monster mode, and it's going to be all my fault. And like you said, that can also show and evidence some OCD intrusive thinking, some a similar flavor that can show up and manifest in OCD. And so, yeah, just trying to say it's okay to be good enough <laughs> and learning and improving along the way because. If we get a little too rigid about this, now it's OCD kind of trying to make it a more rigid process. It's only successful if it looks perfect. And that's not going to help. We're all going to fail at that because no one's perfect. And that's another way OCD can show up in the process. So just being aware of it and going, oh, well, that's sneaky OCD trying to take all the good that we're doing and saying it doesn't matter. It's sneaky. It's very, very sneaky. And OCD already wants to run the show. So I know if we're hyper-focused on, I have to get every single ounce of it all the time. And you're just letting it run the show even more because then all the energy of the family goes toward figuring out, is this a maybe sneaky form of reassurance seeking? Is this something I should be doing something different? And then it's just, again, taking over the whole family. And it already, it wants to be the center of attention. It wants to be in charge. And then that's just another way that that it can be. Yeah, sometimes I will recommend whether it's writing on a mirror in the bathroom or in a bedroom or hanging a sign on the refrigerator or near a computer or sticky note or whatnot, you know, just putting those little reminder questions. What's the function of this? You know, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm feeling distressed, what's the function of that? You know, or, or just a little reminder. I've even had people put a phrase like, I'm working so hard. Because if they see that, then they really, and their mind has been running and running and running, and they go, oh, I'm, I am working hard. I'm working hard. I don't need to work that hard about this. You know, it, it can help kind of snap them out of it in that moment of going, oh, yeah. And I think like all of us sometimes need a little bit of a snap out of the moment, depending on what the thing is that we're kind of involved in. And OCD can be so overwhelming that, yeah, sometimes just kind of bringing, bringing yourself up for air and going, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, I was getting caught up in that. And being able to just walk away and go, okay, I don't need to. Moving on. It's taken enough time. Moving on can be really helpful. And so having those signs around even of like, a, what's the function, you know, where someone can quickly go and not in a checking way. Again, sometimes people are like, but what if I'm composing by checking and doing that? It's like, again, what's the function of it? Are we seeking information to recalibrate or are we trying to solve this perpetual cause of distress? And that that 
your answer to that question is going to kind of help direct you on which way to go on, on how to act moving forward from that thought. So I think that is helpful, just reminding yourself of the function of the behavior. Yeah, absolutely. It's so key for, I mean, almost anything with OCD, right? It's, yeah. What's the purpose? Is OCD in the driver's seat here or am I in the driver's seat? Is it OCD? Is it values? Why am I doing this? And that's such a huge key to treatment. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I love that. I think that's really helpful. And yeah, I think reassurance seeking does come up so much that this is going to be a really important thing to continually kind of remind ourselves of, not in a reassuring way, but just kind of revisiting of like, okay, it's sneaky, it'll show up, having a plan can help, but also not needing it to be planned to perfection, meaning no errors ever, because that's just not realistic. So I think setting realistic goals is just another piece in that. Like you were saying, even with the accommodation tokens, if we are just starting out, we don't want to facilitate maintaining different compulsions at a certain level and just saying, well, a reduction in the compulsion is, is, is success. But starting out, we might need to reduce it because absolutely cold turkey, probably not going to happen either. In fact, if you say that's the expectation, someone's more likely to be like, this is never going to work for me. Bye. And so realizing, setting some realistic goals, even if it is sometimes realistically, I will reassurance seek, but I'm going to try and be open minded and aware of when that happens and learn along the way. Yeah. Realistic goals are so important for people to just continue working on it. If, I mean, I feel like saying, oh, just don't do that compulsion. You might as well be like, oh, if you're depressed. Have you tried just being happy? <laughs> like if, they, if they're aware that compulsions feed their OCD and they're still engaging in them, it's probably not realistic for them to just stop. If they could just stop, they already would have it. Right. Way. They so would. How do, we, how do we get there? Exactly. They would have been like, hey, I'm way ahead of you. Uh, we're done with it. <laughs> right. It wasn't enjoyable. I gave it up. <laughs> right. I decided to stop. Yeah, it, that's a really good point. And I think it makes people feel a sense of shame or whatnot. Like I'm, I'm not able to do this for some reason. I'm a failure. OCD loves those kind of feelings because it's just fuel to the fire. And I think that family members and partners can get caught up in this too. And in the dating dynamic, I don't know how often you run into this in your office. But I think too, in the dating dynamic, people are often trying to put their best foot forward. And they might get a little more raw and a little bit like, uh, uh, you know, once things are a little more, you know, said and done, or they're married or whatnot, or they have a mortgage together, there's some kind of thing that is keeping them a little more committed to each other. But sometimes in the dating arena, too, it's like, well, I really like this person. And I want this to work. This is kind of driving me crazy right now. But then like if I, I feel like if I don't, they're not going to want to stay with me if I don't engage in this reassurance seeking. And I'm in this lovey-dovey kind of phase. So I just want to, you know, I want to comfort them. But again, you made the, a really good point about we can comfort the process. It's not, it's not, it's not to say if, if someone is struggling that you can't comfort them. You can comfort them. But you need to comfort them, not the OCD. And so going, wow, you you are really feeling a lot of upset and a lot. This is hard. And I see that and I love you and I'm proud of how hard you're fighting. Like that is a completely appropriate response without going. And yes, you didn't hit a kid over there. So good job. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Way to not knock people down with the car today. <laughs> 
and so yeah you can you can still provide validation and comfort to the person to the process without speaking to the compulsion to the heart of the fear and also i i would say this you know it seems kind of uh, obvious but at the same time i think nothing is really obvious when you're in the thick of ocd having a conversation about what is the core fear like you have people that maybe have a fear of contamination but what's the, what is their core fear you might be surprised to know that they're actually worried like on an existential level that if they die, there's nothing more to life and what's the meaning? And that's what this germ had to do because if they have the germ, then they could get sick. And if they get sick, they could throw up. And if they could throw up, they could die. And if they die, what happens next? And it's like, so to you, it's obvious they don't like the germs. But sometimes even going like, and I, this hopefully comes out in treatment, but depending on how much you're involved or not, going, okay, so do I have an understanding of ultimately what their core fear is? Because if their if their compulsion is around cleaning or the obsession seems to be mostly about contamination if we if we know kind of that core fear piece then we can know if they're subtly seeking reassurance when they're like so what do you think about afterlife and you're like yeah let's have a conversation about that that's a nice break from ocd <laughs> and meanwhile they're like you know, that's it. It's all linked. It can it can be all linked. Sometimes it can have even magical links. You could be like, rationally, I don't see where they get from this point to this point. But you know what? Good, good for you. You don't have to see it rationally. OCD doesn't have to see it rationally. Sometimes the person even knows. I know it's not rational, but I can't help but think it. So it can have these kind of magical leaps that contamination actually is about. Grandma might die three states away. Like, how would that even happen? It, it could happen. It, it, OCD makes you believe all sorts of things could happen. And so understanding and being on the same page about, okay, we're working on this obsession and this compulsion, but ultimately what is kind of what's behind that? Because that can give you some insight then to some other ways they might seek reassurance that, you, that seem completely unrelated to you, but are absolutely essential to their core fear. And so just having communication and being open about that, if you can participate in the treatment, if your loved one is willing to allow you as a part in, I think it's always great. I love that about pediatric cases because they usually have at least mom or dad or the primary caregiver, if not both. But yeah, it can be harder in older couples and just having or older family members and just having access to that team can be so much more helpful just having them as a part of the treatment and understanding and getting more of that education. Yeah. And then it really is a full team. Like we are all on the battlefield fighting against OCD and it's not just me and the client, it's me and the client and their support system. So they're getting the best care and the best help they can. And that communication piece is, is so key. And I think especially among couples who are struggling with this is going to impact the relationship. So the more information that's shared, the more they can figure out how do we navigate our relationship in the midst of this? How do we have a good relationship that OCD is not like the third wheel to? Right, right. Or puppeteering, you know, just how can we have a no strings attached relationship here with OCD? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of coming up with the script, kind of planning for those things, having some communication, any other kind of things that come to mind for you that are helpful in working through reassurance seeking 
and just, you know, tips for success? Yeah, I think a big thing is just this reminder and validation for the loved one that this is hard. Mm -hmm. It is hard and unnatural to not give your loved one reassurance. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It is something we are not used to doing. So again, that goes back to that grace piece of, you know, this is not an easy, intuitive thing that you're being asked to do. Mm -hmm. So that reminder that this is hard and it's okay and you're not going to always get it right. I think that's a huge piece because I know, especially with parents, they come in and they feel like, oh, I'm I'm such a failure. I keep giving in and keep giving in to OCD and forget that well, this is an objectively difficult thing. We're asking you to like change everything you know about being a parent, not everything, but you know, a very major tenant, which is your child is in distress and asks you if it's okay and you can't say it's okay. Like that is, that's really hard. But I think that's something for family members that I continuously try to do is just validate their experience as well. That OCD really sucks for the person with OCD. Mm-hmm. And it does suck for the family too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and ultimately, you know, I was talking with Dr. Jonathan Abramowitz and he was making the point of often parents or, or family members feel that responsibility to protect their loved one from the distress. And so their aims and, and how they've gotten to the point where the, where the client is, where the family is, is I'm trying to protect you from feeling that icky distress, but it's okay to feel icky distress. And they're actually feeling more icky distress by the reinforcement of the compulsion. So ultimately what we're learning is we can still act. It's not going to hurt us. It's not going to stop us, even though some of these thoughts are just real, real scary, real intrusive, real dark. Some are just frustrating and annoying and, you know, distressing in that way, but some are really frightening. And yeah. You're not the one that's sitting there going, yeah, I'm going to put this thought in your head, ha. You know, but at the same time, we have no control over that. They have no control over that. And it's okay if we feel distress. That's an understandable response to a distressing thought. And we can still go about our day. We can still move forward. And so it's not that you're having the thought. You don't need to protect them from those thoughts. There's no way that you can stop those thoughts from happening. And we're all going to get intrusive thoughts from time to time, not just the OCD sufferers. So it's just, it's part of having a brain. But at the same time, we can protect and love that person by not reinforcing the learning that's happening in the brain. And so part of that is us learning and having our eyes open to what is facilitating this stuckness in the brain in that OCD thought loop and doing what we can to make some shifts in our responses so that we can still live our life and not feel like a puppet that OCD is controlling here. So it, it it's it's counterintuitive because I think even if it's, you know, your boyfriend or a girlfriend, a spouse, a partner, it's like, well, we want the best for them. We don't want to see them suffer in this way. Sometimes we just see them living hell. Like just constant torture. But again, the point isn't to say, well, it's your job to get them out of that torture. And yet you can do a lot to help them not get stuck by not participating in the compulsions. Ultimately, it's going to be their responsibility to also resist those compulsions. But there's a lot we can do as the support team around them to not reinforce it. Right. So if you were on, if you think about the team analogy, if you were playing basketball and one person always had the ball 
and they never shared the ball and they only took the shots and they never were playing as a team, we could decide to not throw the ball to them. We could decide to have them sit on a bench while we do some play. There are still things that we can do as a team that are going to help stop that cycle and say, okay, well, whether you make some changes or not, we can make some changes so that this team can operate as a team. And so similarly, we can't work harder than the client, but we can learn and say, okay, where am I contributing to the cycle? How can I change? It's not going to be perfect every time. Okay. Well, that's not the expectation. So whoo, dodged a bullet. <laughs> we don't have to be perfect. And so that's, that's the good news. And yeah, giving ourselves some grace and saying that's okay. Thank you for that. Well, every episode I end, I have an intrusive thought segment where we kind of talk about an application piece that people can take home. I think you've given an, us a number of application pieces that have been helpful. But I also wanted to talk because you have created a couple of different workbooks that I think are great. And I I know you have at least three because I have those three. Do you have any more in the in the workings? So I have six. You do. I do. <laughs> okay. Would you like me to describe them a yeah. little bit? Yeah, go for it. Go for it. I have harm, scrupulosity, and perfectionism, so I'm excited to hear more. Awesome. Yeah, there's also two different contamination ones, a COVID contamination and a bathroom contamination, and an airplane one nice. as well. Um, yeah, so the, these workbooks, they're exposure-based workbooks. I actually don't even like the term workbook because I feel like people are like, oh, workbooks, stuffy worksheets. But these are like, <laughs> all game-based, almost activity books. So like in the perfectionism one, there's color by numbers that doing it wrong or imperfect crosswords where there's not enough spaces for all the letters for the correct answers. Um, basically, any I find any way we can make exposure slightly fun, the more people are willing to do them. So there's a ton of like word searches and word jumbles and scavenger hunts and things like that throughout the books. They say they're for teens with OCD, but they're not just for teens. They're for anyone with OCD who wants to add in some exposures that have a game element, that have a fun element. There's some like Mad Libs type stuff. Yeah, just like tons of more fun content um, so that exposures aren't just completely terrible because we know exposures aren't inherently fun. So if we can find a way to make them fun, people might be more willing to engage in them. That's excellent. And yeah, I think these are really helpful too, not only for the family, because sometimes you practice something in session and they say, okay, try, try this at home this many times, or, you know, try to vary it a little bit. And you're like, what do I do? I don't know what to vary. <laughs> this is like, I'm not sure. And so these are great different activities that you can you can try for variating homework, but you can also use them as a therapist in session. You can look at it. And so, for example, I'm I'm just looking in the harm one right now. You could do funeral planning where you're filling in the details about your funeral. And, you know, if you're not if you're new to OCD exposures or if you don't have harm based <laughs> OCD fear or death based fears, you might go, why would I want to plan my my funeral? But this can be this can be very, very helpful in exposing yourself to some of the themes that are already there. They're already kind of plaguing the person, but being able to take that theme and really expose yourself 
with an opportunity to practice that response prevention in a in a fun way and in a structured way so that you're not sitting there also going, gosh, but I don't know how to bury the homework this week. I don't know how to do that. And so being able to, you know, design your own gravestone. I love that. I, I've used the one in the harm book of like coloring the knife with and using like multimodal, like, you know, let's give it some texture. Let's make it kind of like splat out. Let's make it goopy. Let's, you know, being able, if you have a fear of hurting somebody and you're doing a knife that maybe has guts on it or maybe, has, you know, whatever, like you can get creative. You might go, oh, my gosh, I could never do that. But in response prevention, you could do that. You can. And so can I. And we, we could all just sit, sit around and decorate gutting knives or whatever that looks like and practice the response prevention and see if we can sit with that distress and if we can keep going, if we can move and act with that distress. Again, it's not just about sitting with it. And so I think those are really helpful. You have in different exercises throughout different books, also ways that you can vary the exposure. So the initial instruction might be do this. But if you want to kind of up the ante on the exposure, you can try this. And I like that, especially like in the perfectionism, like color by number. Okay, well, it's not perfect, but that is what the instructions said to do. So, okay. And so having to pick on your own, which one am I going to mess up on purpose? Which one am I going to go outside the lines on on purpose and be okay not doing the compulsion or practicing until I feel okay about not doing the compulsion? I think that is really, really helpful. And so I think these workbooks, I'm excited that there's more workbooks, especially because I have, I can think of many clients that those other workbooks would be helpful for too. So I, I love these. I found these on Amazon. Are they sold on just on Amazon or can you find them out elsewhere as well? Yeah. So they're on Amazon. What I've learned is if you search my name on Amazon, they don't all come up for some reason. But if people were to go to my website, informedocd.com slash workbooks, the link to all the workbooks are on that page. So if someone's like, oh, I want harm, they can just click on the harm icon and it'll take them to Amazon. So they're all housed in, in that website. Perfect. So I'm going to add on this episode's podcast post, I'm going to put a link to informed OCD so that you can learn more about Laura Mestad. She's done these workbooks. She's a doctoral student wrapping up her doctorate studies. But what are the plans for the future after your PhD? Do you think there's more books in your future? Oh, yeah. So there's definitely more books in the works probably well before I finish my counselor education PhD. So the next one that I will probably do is the second volume of the perfectionism workbook, just because that is my like best-selling workbook. I sell many of those every week. And so I think coming up with the next version of that, and honestly, for most of these, I think what I'll end up doing first is doing like volume two of all the workbooks that are already out there. And then I'm always open for suggestions of the next like theme that I could add into a workbook. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And you have an Instagram, a professional Instagram, right? Yeah, yeah. So my Instagram is OCD Workbooks. And so, yeah, I do post stuff about the workbooks on there, but I also post like resources. Like I have some great exposure Spotify playlists, like the links on there. Just I try to provide as many free resources as I can on my Instagram. And then also just like 
quotes or things that people can relate to or discussion topics and things like that. That's great. So we will drink. We will drink. We'll link Laura's <laughs> Instagram. <laughs> and I love that. So if you have a suggestion for a workbook where you're like, I get stuck trying to go through these exposures or vary these exposures, whether you're an OCD sufferer, a family member, a loved one, or even a therapist, and you're like, hey, these are the things that I'm constantly going, oh, I wish I had more ideas for this. Feel free to drop a comment send a DM something to Laura over on Instagram. You can check out Informed OCD, her website. And yeah, I think that's great. We're always open to anything that where we can get more resources, more information, more learning. So I love that you have that available through Instagram and through your website. And yeah, I'm excited to see what continues to emerge in the future from you. So thank you so much, Laura, for being here today. And for talking about the very important subject of reassurance seeking and how we can just be aware of it, how we can plan for it, some scripts and some stock responses that we can create to help navigate it. But I think this is just going to be super helpful because, yeah, this comes up a lot, as you said, in the hundreds of clients that you've worked with over time. You've never met a client that doesn't do reassurance seeking. And I will note, like once you get kind of your spidey sense gets kind of linked into this, whether a person has OCD or not, if they're just like going for reassurance seeking, you're going to be able to pick it out pretty, pretty quickly. <laughs> you're like, hmm, they're just driven with <laughs> desire for this reassurance seeking. But again, we can always validate the person. We can validate the process they're going through. We don't need to buy into the reassurance seeking. And so I think that's huge. And I think it's really helpful the way that you were able to provide some support and ideas for responses and stats. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And we look forward to seeing the work that you continue to do. And, and this is exciting. So thanks. Hey, thanks, Nicole. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the demo on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like reassurance seeking, always sneaking. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com.